0: Father, we long to be fed from your hand. Not only do we see the difficulties and challenges and trials we face as being filtered through a father of love, and so, in one sense, coming from your hand, but from your hand are blessings. Blessings we cannot number or count. Incredible blessings. And for us to live our lives in the midst of our trials without hope or encouragement is to miss all of those blessings that you offer to us. And one of the greatest, richest blessings that we can have is the word of God. The word that reveals to us who you are, guides our steps. And the spirit of God who lives in our hearts to give us both the will and the power to do your good pleasure and the Son of God, our Savior and Lord. May he be present speaking to every heart to radically change us for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the co-ed had two problems. Her grades were low, and her money was almost gone. So she did what any college student would do. She wrote a letter to her parents. But she thought that they may not be so understanding, so she came up with a very creative approach in this letter, and this is the following uh, letter. This is the letter she wrote. It said, Dear Mom and Dad, I just thought I'd drop you a note and clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy last week. He quit high school after the 11th grade to get married and then about a year ago got a divorce. But we're deeply in love. Hope to get married in the fall. I decided to move in with him. I might be pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of college last week and there's a good chance I might finish someday. And then the letter flipped over And on the second page, mom and dad, I just want you to know that everything I wrote so far in this letter is completely false. None of it's true. But it is true that I got a C minus in French and I flunked math and I am in desperate need of money. (laughs) Now that doesn't sound so bad, does it? (laughs) When you begin to read the book of Romans, it is horrible news. The worst possible news that we as human beings could receive. We have sinned against the holy God and offended his righteousness and are condemned. And there's no hope. There's absolutely nothing we can do condemned forever. And then we flip the page over, but God. God in his mercy and his grace sent his son to be our savior and now he is our righteousness and by faith we connect with him and by faith his righteousness becomes ours. And so God goes from horrible news, not just something that is better and more palatable, but to incredible news. And the book of Romans fleshes all of this out. If you've been with us from the beginning, You know what it is to go down in the depths of our sin and depravity, and then also to be lifted up by the grace of God in the end of chapter three, all of chapter four, five, and six, to this wonderful position we have in Christ. Now we come to what may be the most difficult portion in the book of Romans, at least it is in my mind, where Paul puts together some intricate arguments to deal with the subject of the law, which has all along been part of his theme. In fact, in 25 verses, the word law is mentioned 23 times, and if you add the word commandment, that's 29 times. It is the dominant theme of this particular chapter. But I find it helpful to divide the chapter at least into two sections. The first 13 verses deal with a very common story. It's where those who put their faith in trust are delivered from the law. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to defend the law. Actually, the, the part where the law dominates us and we are delivered by it primarily the first six verses, and then through verse 13, the Apostle Paul is going to defend the law, which almost seems like a totally different perspective from what he's been saying in the first six chapters. So we've got to make sure that we gird up the loins of our minds and read this portion of Scripture with some thought, or else we'll totally miss the message, and it's a glorious message that he wants us to to grasp. So first of all, delivered from the law, I'm reading from Romans 7 and verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, or brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives." It is interesting that Paul says, don't you know, I'm writing to those who know. We're supposed to know when we do know, but sometimes we forget to know what we know. And that's why Paul reminds us over and over again, I'm writing to those who know the law. And he's writing to those who have been delivered from the law. So they're believers, at least that's where we start at the very beginning of the chapter. And then he brings forth a very common story, axiomatic, a legal maxim, that those who die are no no longer under the law's power. Death cancels all contracts. The authority of the law, the Greek word is Lord. The rule of the law, the dominance of the law is on a person only as long as they live. Now, let me share with you something that I found extremely helpful. It comes from the clarifying pen of John Stott, who said in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is going to address three somewhat shadowy characters. He doesn't address them Always directly, sometimes indirectly, but he's constantly talking about them. And let me mention the three, for all of us fit into one of these categories. The first is the legalist. And this has to do with our position, our attitude toward the law. The legalist is bound by the law. The legalist thinks that the law can save. Or if it can't save, at least by keeping the law, I can become sanctified, keeping the law in my own power. And so we are still dominated by this law that really can only condemn us. That's the Jew of the first century. The second person with regard to the attitude toward the law is an antinomian. Namas, the Greek word for law, anti-against, anti-law. This is the person who doesn't believe there are any rules or laws whatsoever. This is the 21st century new morality, which is not new, it's as ancient as man, but it's the morality that dominates the culture in which we live. There is no law and there are no rules and you can't tell me I'm wrong. You ever run into one of those individuals? All the time. (laughs) Well, if you haven't run into one of those individuals, it might be because you are one. You just haven't looked in the mirror yet. But you're really working on the premise that there are no mega laws. There are no transcendent laws that come from a God above us who is in control of the universe. The third I'll call the biblicist the law-abiding believer. And this is the one who has a sense of balance with the law, which we're going to see this morning as Paul begins to argue his case. This is the one who loves the law, wants to obey the law, but is constantly struggling with the law. That's the end of the chapter, and we'll deal with that a little more next week. So the legalist bound to it, the antinomian hates it, and the biblicist has this wonderful balanced position of appreciation and recognition of the law, and yet constantly struggling in his own heart. The biblicist position is actually summarized by the very last verse of the chapter, which says, thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind, Paul says, I really want to obey God's law, but because of the sin that still remains in me, my sinful nature that is still there, when I submit to that, I am a slave to that sin. That's the battle. But it says in verse one, you die and the law has no power over you. Did you know that there is a good death? And the good death is to die in Jesus Christ. We have been buried with him by baptism into his death so that we can be, by his resurrection, raised into newness of life. Now Paul uses this example, verse 2, He says, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. The law is abolished. She is free now without restriction, discharged from her responsibility due to her union to her husband. We say when someone gets married until... Death do us part. It's in almost every wedding ceremony. I don't think people listen to it, but it's there. Paul goes on. So, verse 3, while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. Worse than that, bigamy. Or even more than that, bigamy. This is not so much talking about divorce. And by the way, this is not the place to go to try to build a theology of divorce. Paul's using an illustration, and he even flips the illustration a little bit on us, which is rather interesting. But he says, no, if she, while her husband is alive, would marry another man, that's adultery. But if her husband dies, she's free, free from the law and does not commit adultery even if she Remarries. And that's actually the New Living Translation. I thought it was a little clearer, and so I threw that in. So the application is this, my brothers and sisters, the, one who, the ones who know the law, do you not know this, my brothers and sisters? You also died to the law. There's the good death. By the way, the law did not die. You did. Important distinction. You died to its power. The law did not die. You died to the law through the body of Christ so that, purpose statement, you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God. What a wonderful declaration of the purpose of our conversion of our regeneration. We are new creatures in Christ, why? So that we might belong to another. Before you're a Christian, you belong to the evil one. And you're bound by the law. And condemnation is your destination. Oh, but now you belong to another. There are two slaveries in chapter six, and there are two marriages. In chapter seven, you were married to the law but you died to the law and now you're married to another and this is where Paul flips his illustration just a little bit. We're now married to Christ. The law used to rule us but we've been released from its power because we died to it and now we're in a new relationship. And the very remarkable thing about this illustration is the beautiful picture Of our union with Christ is to be seen in the sense that we are married to him. Ephesians chapter 5 says the same thing. When I read Ephesians chapter 5 at weddings, I'm not sure which is the illustration and which is the principle are we talking about a man marrying a woman and and so the man is to love the woman like Christ loves the church but in the end Paul says I'm really talking about the church and Jesus and we're his bride and he died to redeem us and when we get to the book of the revelation there's going to be the marriage supper of the lamb in which the bride of Christ comes together what a glorious glorious day that's going to be i like to eat and that is gonna be one fantastic feast. Every time I go out to dinner and food is placed before me, there's a little bit of fear in me because I don't necessarily like all foods. I blame it on my upbringing because my dad only liked a few things and I thought he liked everything because everything mom served he loved. But she only served what he loved And then I found out later, this is a whole world of food out there. And it took me a while to learn to like some things, and I still haven't learned to like some things. But you know what? The marriage supper of the Lamb, there'll be no fear. I'll have sanctified a sanctified palate and taste buds, and it's going to be glorious. I'm married to Christ. What a glorious truth. Paul, reflecting on that past situation, says in verse 5, when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Now, Paul is going to be dealing with a second kind of death that is horrible, that is eternal, that is the result of sin. Notice, controlled by the sinful nature, aroused in the heart by the law, results in me bearing fruit that leads to my death. The law arouses, and we've touched on this before, the law, the law incites us to sin. Someone has well said, the fact that something is prohibited makes it desirable. And it was true in the garden. God says you can eat of any tree except this one. And Eve and Adam wanted that one. The devil pointed out that one and made it look like God was being rather stingy to put any prohibition on man whatsoever. And that's what the devil still does today. Isn't it sad that God won't let you have whatever you want? But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God is amazingly generous. So he saved us so that we would belong to him and bear fruit for him. But when the law came, it stirred up our passions that were in us. And we wanted to give in to the prohibition. The prohibition becomes the temptation. And when we embrace it, we bear bad fruit. Verse six, but now. Now we have been released from the law for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now, look at those two nows, very important. We've been released from the law, we've died to the law. We're not under its authority, its tyranny, its rule. We're free and freedom means you can do whatever you want. So say many people. But now we're dead to sin so we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying a written code, the letter of the law, but in a new way being controlled by the Holy Spirit. When I'm controlled by the sinful nature, the law stirs up my passions and I bear fruit to death. But I've been redeemed, verse four, to belong to Jesus And the Holy Spirit, verse six, is living in my soul so that I will bear fruit for God. But now I have a new Lord. But now I am a new slave, as it were. Our emancipation from the law does not mean that we are free to do whatever we want to do. Our emancipation means we're now free to serve, not to sin. I'm free to serve, not to sin. I'm free to say yes to God and no to sin where I couldn't do that before. That's a glorious freedom. We might call it our new Christian slavery. We've taken his yoke upon us and it is an easy yoke to bear by the grace of Of Almighty God. So that's Paul talking about being delivered from the law, which would wreak havoc in his soul. But then he thinks, you know, some people might have such a poor view of the law that they think that there's something wrong with the law. Look at verse 7. Now Paul defends the law. He's going to tell us the law is not the culprit. As F.F. Bruce says, the law is not the victim in this chapter. Our sinful nature is. Verse 7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Absolutely not. Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law. I can't blame it simply because it exposes my problem. The rest of verse seven, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said you shall not covet. That's the last of the 10 commandments, thou shalt not covet, different from the others because it primarily is an attitude. And here, the the Bible simply tells us that the law is good because it reveals the sin within us. I go to the doctor, and the doctor examines my body and says, you have a problem. And so I blame the doctor. You know, before I came in here, I was fine. And suddenly now, you say, I've got a disease. What kind of quack are you? Do you ever do that? I mean, of course not. He just revealed what was there. But I was doing fine until he said something. I would not have known coveting was wrong until he said, thou shalt not covet. The law reveals my sin. Verse eight, but sin... Seizing the opportunity, great translation. Taking advantage of that situation. Afforded by the commandment that says, thou shalt not, produced in me all kinds of coveting. I didn't know it was sinful until he said, don't do it. And now that's all I want to do. It stirs up the passions. And then I realized this. Apart from the law, sin was dead. But when the law comes in, I see that sin in me is very much alive. You wanna know a simple reason why people don't want to come to church? It's boring, okay, that's one (laughs) for them. It was to me before I knew Christ. One reason people don't want to come to church is because they don't want to be confronted with their sin. Oh, they say it doesn't exist, but i just as soon not think about it. So according to verse eight, the law provokes sin. It stimulates and arouses sin as we already saw. I'm driving down the road the other day And I see a sign that says, reduce your speed. And my first question is, why? I mean, give me some good reason why. You know, because sometimes, have you ever noticed this? Sometimes it says, reduce your speed, and there's no reason? Really? I mean, they've taken away the pylons, and they've taken away the other orange signs, and no one's out there working, but they didn't take away the sign, reduce the speed. So I remember that. And when I see reduce the speed, I say, prove it. (laughs) I'm not saying this is good thinking. (laughs) I'm just telling you, that's what we often do. It provokes sin in us. And then Paul goes autobiographical on us. By the way, I I was thinking a lot this week about maybe Paul was autobiographical in the very first part of the chapter, because Paul, being a Pharisee, must have been married. But when he wrote to the Corinthians, it was clear. He said, I'm not married. I would wish you would be like me in this unmarried state. And so if Paul was married as a Pharisee, his wife either left him or she died. And maybe if his wife had left him, Paul often thought much about the union of marriage and the freedom when one departs. I don't know if that's the case, but now Paul is very autobiographical when he says, Once I was alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came in, (laughs) sin, it sprang to life. And I immediately died because of the law. Very graphic term. So so the Apostle Paul, as a young boy, didn't have a problem with the law until maybe, let's say around 13, when he became a son of the covenant at his own bar mitzvah and embrace the obligations of the law. Now the law has a different relationship with him. He sees the law, he understands the law, and sin springs to life. And now he's gotta deal with the law. Sin was dead, verse eight. Now I'm dead, verse nine. And it may seem like a harsh thing for a doctor to tell you you've got a problem, but it's the best thing he can do. So you can find a solution. may seem like a harsh thing for a preacher to say you're a sinner and condemned and lost. But it's the best thing you can hear if it will drive you to Christ. And that's the third thing. The law reveals sin, verse 7. The law provokes sin, verse 8. And the law condemns sin, verse 9. Three devastating results. Verse 10, I have a translation here that is found both in the Revised Standard Version and the English Standard Version, identical. I think it's a good translation. It says the very commandment which promised life. Some say it intended life. Only in the sense that this is good, follow it and you live. It promised life, but it proved to be death. No, the law never was intended to save you, but it was to show you your need to be saved. If anything could promise life, I mean, if there was a way to live, this is the way to live, but it proves to be death. In verse 11, the law seized again that opportunity afforded by the commandment, and it deceived me. The Greek word means to seduce. Sin seduces people. Sin always deceives people. We think we can be satisfied by sinning. We think we can justify our evil actions. We think that we won't have to pay a penalty for what we do. Sin deceives us. Go back and read Genesis 3, what the serpent said to Eve. You shall not die. That's the most ridiculous. You're eating a piece of fruit. How could that kill you? But God knows once you eat that fruit, you'll be just like him. And he doesn't want any rivals. I know. (laughs) That part was true. (laughs) And she ate the fruit. And then she saw her sin and her death. Hmm. No, sin does not save us or satisfy us. We cannot justify it or escape its penalty. It deceives us. But if there is no law, we think it's fine. Suppose you're playing tennis and there are no rules. You didn't know that you could let the ball bounce twice before you returned it over the net. You do that all the time. It's easier to get to them if you let them bounce several times. But then someone comes up with rules. You can only let it bounce once. And if you let it bounce twice, what do you call that? A fault. And there's some umpire who says, fault. That's kind of the way life is. Sin reveals the character of God and shows that when we break God's law, we sin. It's called a fault. And there is punishment to be paid. So, verse 12. So then, indeed. Here's Paul's real uh, defense of the law itself. And by the way, in my NIV translation, the word indeed is not translated. I'm not exactly sure why, unless I missed it. So I put it in there. So then, indeed, absolutely, beyond any debate, Indeed, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Why is that so? Because the law is a reflection of God. The law reveals my sin. The law revives my sin. The law results in death when I sin. But the law reflects the character of God. And that's why it is good. Is the law sinful? Verse 7. Absolutely not. Because the law reflects the holy, good, righteous character of God. So he comes up with a final question in verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? In other words, can I blame the good for my death? Certainly not. Nevertheless in order that sin might be recognized as sin. It used what was good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become exceedingly sinful or utterly sinful. The word utterly is the English word almost transliterated from the Greek, hyperbole. Now we, in English, translate the word hyperbole to mean Above reason, something that exceeds, exaggerates reality. But the Greek word means to go beyond everyone else, to exceed others. And it's still in the realm of reality. So some of your translations will be so that we might see that sin is utterly or exceedingly sinful. And that's what the law does. Paul, you put the law against sin and all you see is the hideousness of disobeying God, the iniquity, the wickedness, the rebellion, the stain of your own sin and of mine. So Paul says, praise God, we're delivered from it. Thanks be to God, verse 25, thanks be to Christ. And the law needs to be defended, not that it can save, not that it can sanctify by its own power. That has to be the work of the Spirit in our hearts. But because it reflects the holiness of God, the law is holy and just and good. And we cannot get away with sin. We cannot sin and get away with it. Years ago in California, there was a bank robber by the name of Daniel Candelario who sprinted out of the door of the California Savings and Loan in Oakland with a wad of money stuck into his pockets. But his getaway was rudely interrupted when the wad of money exploded It was connected to a booby trap, a security device and it exploded and he didn't get very far. (laughs) The police got hold of him and he was sentenced to eight years in jail. Second and third degree burns in his body, by the way. And so while in jail, he got a hold of a lawyer and sued the county for $2 million because of his burns. Get this, a bank robber in, bank, in jail for eight years suing for two, he's still going to try to make a killing, $2 million. And a Stanford law professor by the name of Mark Franklin said, you know, he could have a case if he can prove that the intent of the bank was to cause him physical injury because the punishment for bank robbing shouldn't be maiming. <laughs> We are living in a day where anything can be excused because up is down and down is up and left is right and no one goes to truth. You can't even have a conversation with someone and until someone surrenders to the truth, they won't realize that they're sinner on their way to a crisis eternity. By the way, that is horrible news. But praise God for the incredibly happy news. Jesus has died and all your sins can be forgiven. Free from the law, oh happy condition. Jesus has bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and something by the fall, bruised by the fall. But Christ has redeemed us once for all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we look at your law and we're so thankful that we have been freed from its tyranny because there's no way we can keep it. It's a good law, it's a holy law, it's a righteous law. And once your spirit is in our heart, we long to keep it and we long to follow it and you help us do that. Not perfectly, but You help us follow the law because it's you. But oh Lord, we want to praise your name today because we have been delivered from its penalty by pure grace, by the work of Christ, and now we can go free. We can struggle in this realm called sanctification. We can train ourselves to be godly by the power of the Holy Spirit, actually make some progress but it's all because of grace. It's all because of Christ. If someone is here who doesn't know you, may they turn their hearts to you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.